This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 480. The cost of turnover is significant, but it's small compared to all the operational costs that come with high turnover and and, and people's inability to focus on the job because they're paid low and, and they have all sorts of stress in their lives. From healthcare facilities to call centers, fulfillment centers to factories and restaurants to retail stores, companies are struggling to find or keep workers because the jobs they offer are low-paying, stressful, and provide little chance for growth and success. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown. This is the Read to Lead podcast, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, well, that starts with a consistent reading habit. I created this podcast in part to help you build that reading habit. Today, we're going to hear from the author of a book called The Case for Good Jobs, how great companies bring dignity, pay, and meaning to everyone's work. That author's name is Zainab Tone. Among other things, Zainab and I plan to talk about some of the ways in which low pay coupled with high turnover are far more expensive than many leaders think it is, her response to leaders who suggest some people aren't worth more pay or some jobs don't create the value to warrant more money, the general lack of trust that many leaders have in frontline employees today, and plenty more. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, and that means that Cohort 5 of Note Making Mastery begins tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You still have time to sign up for this fifth iteration of a course I first launched just over a year ago. If you have difficulty effectively capturing your notes, knowing what to write and how much, and find that your notes are often of little or no use to you later, or your notes are siloed inside various note capture apps and hard to call upon when needed, or you do a good job of capturing other people's thoughts from the content you consume, but those insights never seem to evolve into ideas all your own. Maybe you've got numerous notebooks filled with handwritten notes that are difficult to organize with ideas among them that are impossible to connect, or you can't seem to ever get to creating with your notes and implementing on what you've learned. Well, in the Note Making Mastery Live cohort, you'll learn a four-step process to better note making, which I believe is the next level of note taking. You'll learn how to better collect and capture your notes, what to write, how much, what tool to use and when how to better connect and organize your notes so that you can easily and effectively find them later, how to better crystallize, develop, and distill your notes so that your unique response to the inputs, your own ideas and insights generated from the content you consume doesn't fall through the cracks, and how to better create from or out of your notes. After all, what's the point of consuming all the content you do in the first place if you're never sharing what you've learned with the world, whether that's online, at work, or even in conversation? Those who have gone through previous iterations of note-making mastery have reported increased efficiency with their time, being able to capture and organize ideas and notes the first time through a book or material, improved listening skills, leaps in their professional growth and development, more consistency in publishing content, enhanced reading comprehension and retention, becoming better conversationalists, or maybe even starting or completing work on their first book. If any of that sounds exciting to you, we'd love to have you for Note Making Mastery number five again kicks off today, June 20th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Four live sessions total. If you can't make a session, you always have access to the recording. For more information, you go to this website, jeffbrown.me. How easy is that? J E F F B R O W N dot M E. Jeffbrown.me. And I'll see you for Note Making Mastery.
Zainep Tone is a professor of the practice in the operations management group at MIT Sloan School of Management and the president of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute. Before MIT Sloan, she spent seven years on the faculty at Harvard Business School. Her research explores how organizations can design and manage their operations in a way that satisfies employees, customers, and investors simultaneously. Her first book is called The Good Jobs Strategy, How the Smartest Companies Invest in Employees to Lower Costs and Boost Profits. Her new book is called The Case for Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work. Well, Zainab, it is a delight to have you here. I'm thrilled to talk to you about uh, your book. Thank you for taking the time. I know with all you do, you have a busy schedule, so I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. I have to start with a personal anecdote. I learned yesterday that you're from Turkey originally. Yes. For the last two plus years, my mother has fallen in love with the Turkish culture, so much so that she's at 81 teaching herself Turkish. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> she's watching Turkish soap operas and, and, and movies and, and, and trying to learn the language. And so when I learned you're, you're from Turkey, I had to text her and I said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but the person I'm interviewing tomorrow is from Turkey. And she immediately says, well, what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> and I tell her your name. And she says, this is her response. Zeynep is a very popular girl's name in Turkey. Yes. One of my shows has a character named Zeynep. <laughs> and then she refers to herself in the third person saying, your mother watches a lot of Turkish television <laughs> and has learned 100 Turkish words. Oh, tell her. I'm so <laughs> proud of her. Uh, learning Turkish words. And I hope she has the opportunity to visit my country because I think our competitive advantage is how we make people feel. The hospitality is pretty. Um, well, for context, with regard to the book, describe the good jobs uh, system that you lay out in your first book mm -hmm. and, and, and where exactly this new book picks up the, the conversation. Great. The, the, the good job system is actually quite simple. Most leaders intuitively know that in order to win, they need to have a strong team that's set up to succeed. But so many, especially in frontline service industries, think that they can't afford to have that team mm. because they think that they have to pay low wages and deal with the resulting turnover and low service. And that's a necessity in their industry. But I found in my early research was that no, low pay and high turnover is not necessary to compete in low-cost services. Even mm -hmm. in low-cost retail, there's a way to win with your customers through creating good jobs. And the first book was about the, the overall system, which was a combination of investment in people and also positioning them for success, key operational choices that position them for success. Mm -hmm. And it was the what of that good job system. And after the book came out, I surprisingly, this was a, I, I, I was expecting some pushback, uh, but I started getting requests from a lot of company leaders from like largest companies to dog walking businesses saying, you know what, that vicious cycle that you describe in the book of what happens when you pay little and, and high turnover problems, we are in that vicious cycle. We want to get out, but we don't know how. And, and, and so this book, after, you know, eight more years of work, this book is on the why of the good job strategy or good job system. I call it system now to emphasize that it is a system. It's not just one or two things right. and how to implement it in your organization. 
And the point you make early on in the book is the, this system for many built around low pay and, and high employee turnover is actually more expensive. It's not less expensive. It's more expensive than, than leaders think it is, isn't it? Yes, it is really expensive to, 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 to operate with low pay. And I knew it was before when I wrote the first book, but I learned that even it's even worse uh, since I started working with companies. So let me walk through some of the costs of low pay. The obvious cost is high turnover. Right? Low pay is one of the biggest drivers of turnover in organizations. And in frontline service settings, we have seen turnover levels from 40% to 300%, depending on the organization. And the cost of turnover alone could be 10 to 25% of what you're paying your employees. So, mm-hmm. so the cost of turnover is significant, but it's small compared to all the operational costs that come with high turnover mm-hmm. and, and, and people's inability to focus on the job because they're paid low and, and they have all sorts of stress in their lives. And operational mistakes, not being able to do a good job lead to lost sales. Right. So lost sales is one of the biggest costs of operating with low pay, lost sales that comes from mistakes, poor service or, or long lines. And then there are product costs, waste and low productivity. But even bigger is, in addition to these financial costs, is when companies operate with high turnover and low pay, they end up creating an entire system that's very vulnerable because there are so many management practices that they just can't implement. They can't hire the right people and train them well. They can't trust their employees to make decisions. They can't manage capacity. They can't develop strong managers. They can't have high expectations. This is a lot of cans. <laughs> and it's almost like management malpractice. I call them corporate disabilities. And all of this results in an incompetitive system and inhumane system too. That's very vulnerable. Springboarding off the, the can't comment that you made, how would you respond to someone who says, a leader who says, I know the good job systems is what I need to do, is what we need to do, but I can't see us as a company doing it? Yes. One of the biggest hesitations, Jeff, from leaders who read the first book in particular is that they realize they have to change so many different things. Mm-hmm. And lots of people in the organization has to be part of the change because the good job system is not just you know, you pay more and the world is a better place. You change the work that people do. And so many people uh, in product design, merchandising, logistics, supply chain have to be part of the change. So one reaction is, I can't see us doing this. And now my response to them is, you know, you can look at all the companies that have done it from a $60 billion retailer to two units of a restaurant chain. And the results have been higher productivity, higher customer satisfaction and sales, and much lower turnover. So you can. So so I wrote this book to help provide courage to those leaders who feel like they're trapped in their system and they can't get out. And I want to show them, you know, the trap you're in is worse than you think. And the way out is actually easier than you think. You mentioned Costco as one of your... Uh, examples of doing this well. And it gave me new appreciation for my local Costco. The only complaint I have when I go in there is just how busy it is, how many customers are in the store. <laughs> yes. And and I'll give you, so Costco, and, and you don't have to be a warehouse club to be able to do this, but I'll give, since you mentioned Costco, so Costco pays its frontline employees 
maybe $10 more than a typical retailer, mm. an hour more. I mean, that's a huge, a typical Costco worker makes more than $25 an hour. Mm. Almost 100% of the managers are promoted within. They, they, they are there at Costco for a career and they have amazing benefits. But it's not just investment in people that Costco does. Costco also positions them for success. One of the key pillars of the good job strategy is operate with Slack. So if you go to Costco, you're going to see a lot of employees. What are they doing? On that Saturday that you're there, Jeff, they are trying to get customers to flow through that checkout as quickly as possible so you can process as many customers as possible to raise sales. They are there to make sure that the shelves are stuck. They are there to always experiment with different ways to display merchandise so that the members are happy. And because they contribute more to Costco's overall success, Costco can pay them more and offer them good jobs. And, and to your point, that Slack, meaning among other things, an overlap in schedules, for example, you've, you've got more people than you need at any given moment to make sure things don't fall through the cracks, right? Yes, absolutely. And operate with Slack is one of the four principles. Um, it's often not the first principle that we tell companies to implement when they adopt a good job system. Uh, but it is so important. Think about in your life what happens when you have no room in your calendar and you're just busy over and over, you know, all the time. There's anxiety, there's burnt out. And then the result becomes you're more unproductive, you're less creative, you're less innovative. The same thing happens in the front lines too. And when and you operate in a setting with a lot of customers and there's a lot of variability that comes from them, you need some slack to be able to deal with that variability. And I, I must say this as an operations professor, operating with slack is the optimal strategy if you have any variability in your system. Now, there are some similarities between the good job system and the Toyota production system that, that many might be familiar with, but there are also some not so subtle differences, aren't there? Yes, they're at the heart of it. And Toyota production system oftentimes get confused because it's called lean production system and people think lean and mean is the right way to run a business. Right. But that's not Toyota production system. Toyota production system, and I work a lot with Toyota and, and at, at its core, it's a culture of engaged people, engaged, motivated people who are solving problems and improving all the time. So that's what Toyota production system is about. And if you look at the principles customer first, employees at the, as the most important assets or resources, um, and continuous improvement, those principles are similar with Good Job System too. Uh, one of the key differences is that Toyota production system requires amazing competence. Mm. So there's the just-in-time and, and Jidoka is identifying problems. And they're like the Michael Jordan of problem solving. <laughs> like Michael Jordan of problem solving one at a time. And in the Good Job mm. system, you still solve problems. You still involve your people. But it doesn't require as much technical um, competence as Toyota production system requires. I, I often tell companies, if you want to implement the Toyota production system, do the good job system first, because it provides you the stability that you need to be able to get to that high technical difficulty of one at a time problem solving. Mm -hmm. Good point. Um, you mentioned Costco paying more than most a moment ago. Address the person who thinks maybe some employees might not be worth even $15 or $20 an hour, whatever it is, or or some jobs don't create enough value to justify higher pay? Yeah, these are two questions that I get all the time. I'll start with the jobs that don't create enough value. Even leaders who think that US needs more good jobs 
tend to believe that some jobs do not generate enough value to, to be able to justify higher pay. And oftentimes I ask them, do you think you will think a retail job is like that? And their answer will be yes, retail jobs wouldn't create that much value. And I say Costco versus a competitor, the same job, one pays more than 50% more than the other. How is that possible? Because you design the job differently. Mm. You design the job so that you don't waste your employees' time. You design the job to empower them, to, to increase their productivity and contribution, and that's a management choice. So that's about jobs themselves. And then there's a thing of some people are not worth $15 an hour. Mm. And, and this is a big problem. Since 1917, when census started categorizing work into skilled work, mid-skilled work, low-skilled work, it became easier to justify low pay for unskilled, what are called unskilled jobs, mm. and and equating people with those unskilled jobs. And my reaction to that is most people want to do a good job and most people can do a lot worth than $15 or even $20 an hour if they're given the opportunity. Look at all the examples of companies where the same person started operating very differently under a new system. What are, your, are some of the reasons, do you think, Zainab, that that leaders are afraid to to bet on people? Is it a, a lack of trust? Is it that they see them as um, unskilled or lacking motivation, perhaps? Yeah, there are several different reasons, Jeff, and you alluded to one of those before, but I'll mention my top three. Um, and we, there are even more, but I'll mention my top three. The first one is lack of imagination. So mm. for generations, leaders have been taught that labor is just another input to production, mm. just another cost. Market pay is the right pay, as if you know, living wages and people's ability doesn't matter. And lean and mean is what drives efficiency. And we should make all our decisions using data. And it's oftentimes historical data. And in this system, they can't even imagine operating differently. Mm. Uh, so that's the lack of imagination is the first one. I remember uh, one of the companies that implemented the good job system, they said previously, we improved our productivity 1-2%. And if we looked at historical data, we would have said, there's no way we can improve productivity more than that. But we improved it 20% now during mm. the last few years. So they can't even imagine how much better they could perform under a different system. Mm. Um, the second reason is the legitimacy, right? It seems so for those leaders who says, oh, I can't see ourselves doing it. It's because they think that this is too risky and they think that others won't see this as a worthwhile investment. You know, in 2015, when Walmart announced that they were going to raise pay of their frontline workers and how much it was going to cost them, there was an immediate drop in their stock price, right? Mm. So that, that immediate drop, it didn't last a long time, but it signaled to management that, hey, investors don't think that this is something legitimate to do. And there are easier, faster ways to grow sales and profits Maybe, you know, we care about our reputation. We care about our jobs as leaders. Maybe we should do those things that are more legitimate. So that's the number two reason. And then the number three that you got to was lack of trust in frontline employees. And this is, I'm not saying this as a criticism because, you know, the good job system requires 
leaders to trust their workers to make decisions, to solve problems for their customers, to improve their work. But if you operate in a low pay, high turnover system, what you see is people are having attendance problems. Mm. People are showing up late. People are making mistakes. They can't serve the customer. They can't even execute the simplest job. Why? Because they are in their own vicious cycle of poverty. Because low pay drives stress when you when you have multiple jobs, when you can't sleep at night. You know, there's stress, there are cognitive functioning problems. All, all of these things prevent workers from doing a good job. And then the leaders look at this and say, hey, how can I trust this person? And, and, and I, I remember in one of our workshops, one leader said, we have created an entire system assuming people can't do anything right. And when I look at companies that adopted the good job system, their leaders have a very different inclination toward people. They, at Mercadona, the Spanish retailer, one of their principles is everyone is reliable. Mm. That means that we can trust everyone to do a good job. If they can't, we need to look in the system to see where is there a problem that prevents them from doing doing a good job? Or did you hire the wrong person? As you were talking, you reminded me the progressive example and some of the things they did, particularly during the pandemic. I remember thinking at one point during the pandemic, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Why am I still paying the same for auto insurance? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about some of the, the the things that progressive did that initially cost them a lot of money. And I'd be curious to know what well, what was the long-term impact of doing that thing, though? Yeah, one of the things that you see when you look at companies like Progressive, Costco, HEB, Toyota, they do the right thing, mm. right? So, so, so they're so customer-focused. They're operationally excellent, but they also do the right thing. So during the pandemic, they realized they were making too much money. <laughs> Their customers were not driving. And they were making too much money. And the right thing to do was to give back customers some of that that money. And it was totally the right thing to do. And then what ended up happening is all the other insurance companies followed their suit because they kind of had to do it too. Uh, But this is... Doing the right thing at these companies always almost becomes a habit. Mm. And when you have empowered people, that habit is everywhere. Uh, during the pandemic, actually during uh, in Texas, there was a, I don't know if you if you remember, but there was a period where there was no electricity, the, the temperatures dropped to super cold levels and it, like they lost power. And there's an example of an H at, at an HEB store in the middle of that, they lost power. And then there were a bunch of people at the checkout and the store manager said, just go ahead. Just mm. go ahead. And but that person was empowered to make that decision for the customers. And of course, the loyalty that their customers have in return is amazing. Mm. That's uh, that's fantastic. Now, let's say that through the course of this conversation that, that you and I have managed to convince a leader to go all in on this, help them make the case with those whose buy-in they're gonna need. I'm thinking stockholders, yep. uh, the board, et cetera. Okay, so let's let's play this out. Maybe we'll have a the hypothetical um, restaurant chain, right? That I mean, I, or re, the restaurant is easy. Everybody yeah. can relate to restaurants, right? So I'm making the case to my board or investors or whoever. I think the first first I will start with. I know you're concerned that this is going to cost us a lot of money, mm. but we're already paying for this. We're paying for it with lost sales, mistakes, poor customer service. We're paying for it with turnover. So we're just going to redirect those costs that we're already paying 
into our employees and into a better system. Mm-hmm. And we have to do this competitively. We're losing our customers to our competitors. The only way to win with our customers is to provide them good food and good service. If their food is cold, if they get the wrong order, if the service is slow, they're not going to come back. And the only way we can do that is if we have a great team that's positioned for success. We can't do that if we're operating with 100% turnover. So we have to reduce turnover. How do we do that? We simultaneously invest in our people and we make their work more productive. And the result of this is not just going to be winning with our customers and paying, you know, and, and, and getting the financial benefits, but we will be very proud of leading a company that does the right thing. Mm. Our employees are making poverty level wages. They can't get by and I know you don't feel good about that. I don't feel good about that. And this is our opportunity to improve lives of people, to do the right thing and the smart thing. That's my case. <laughs> Great job laying out the case. I love that. Well, you, you end the book on momentum. Once the ball gets rolling and, and things start to, to click and ebb and flow, what tweaks are we as leaders going to need to make? Yes. So the first thing is to create urgency around this, right? That competitive case that we, we must do this to be able to survive, to be able to grow our business and, and align different functions in the organization together. Because for this to work, functions like product design, logistics, supply chain, marketing, sales, they have to be involved because their decisions affect the work that front lines do. So the first thing is align these different functions, bring urgency. And then the question is, while in a system change, when we have to make so many interrelated changes, what change do we make first, right? So, So first, let's start making those big changes that will get us out of the vicious cycle that we have been operating in. Those big changes are investment in people. So let's increase pay as much as possible, get people as close as possible to a living wage, create career paths, more stable schedules. But to be able to pay for those pay increases, we also need to be smart about how we reduce their workload, make their work better so that they're more productive, so they can generate more value and serve the customer well. So so the first set of changes has to be for this to work, the reduction of workload and workload variability and investment in people. And that gets the momentum going because now we start reducing our turnover. Now we start serving our customers well. Now we start having better performance and better performance enables us to further invest in, in, in our people. Mudbay, a, a, a small chain of pet stores in Northwest now pays their employees a living wage. That's not where they started. They started making 50 cents and increase every six months, but that momentum got them to a living wage. Sam's Club, a huge retailer, started with $5 to $7 wage raises for certain employees. But once they got the ball rolling and they had momentum, they could reinvest, they could they could make everybody else's job better. So, so let's create that momentum by making those big, courageous changes as early as possible. Mm. What, Zainab, have I not asked you about the book that you'd love to make sure that we walk away with or know about? You know, you asked me great questions. So I think we covered so much. One of the things that I, I would love to include is, you know, one surprise that I've had during the last eight years now of working together with companies is, I thought there would be more pushback, but people at all levels in the organization 
are genuinely interested in the system change. Mm. Right? System change requires down, it seems daunting, it seems very hard to do. But so many people, once they learn about their status quo and their role in creating that status quo, nobody likes paying unlevel wages. Nobody likes making the work of frontline employees miserable. Nobody likes disrespecting people. Nobody likes to set them up for failure in front of the customer. So what surprised me was how many people at all levels want to pursue this change if their leader lets them. I know that uh, you mentioned Jim Collins and Good to Great and some other books in your book. Over the course of your career, what have been some of the books that have been most impactful to you? Yeah, I think starting, I I did my uh, doctoral work in operations. My background is operations. But one of the first books that really changed my mind was Made in America about the 1970s, 80s decline in in U.S. businesses and Mm -hmm. compared to Japan and Germany and why are we falling behind? And that showed me that, wow, it's not some country level things, it's management that matters. So so that book, along with the work of Edward Deming, his quality book, uh, The Machine That Changed the World, those were from a professional point of view, very impactful from a people point of view, mm-hmm. uh, I read this book called Rivet Head about a factory worker and their experience working at a GM factory where they are paid well, but their job is designed for robots. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mind-numbing job and all the problems that happens. Uh, so that was eye-opening. And, mm-hmm. and, and then Evicted is another one that mm-hmm. just got to my heart. It's, it's, it's about you know people being evicted and what led them to that situation. It's a fantastic book. I'm curious to know, as a professor and an author in particular, the systems and strategies you use when learning new things, coming across new ideas, things you want to save and remember. What are some of the things you do to make sure that that knowledge doesn't get lost? And I'm I'm asking this question almost selfishly because I lead an online cohort called Note Making Mastery, where we study what are the best ways to to capture, uh, to, uh, to collect, to connect and organize, to distill and crystallize? What you've learned, and then ultimately take what you, these building blocks and create with them. So, what are, what are some of your methods for trying to make sure that the stuff that comes in your head doesn't forever leave if you don't want it to? <laughs> I think one of my methods, and I'm not sure if I'm a, a role model for this, to be honest, <laughs> but one of my methods is not to have my phone with me. Mm. Um, so that I can focus on the conversation, I can hear the, the what somebody is communicating as well and 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 focus on that. I always carry a notebook with me, uh, mm-hmm. always, and write things on my notebook, the takeaways. And some of those I end up translating into my computer, but not everything shows up on my computer. You know, those sure. some of the some of the highlights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody's different, and I find that when it comes to writing things down, actually physically writing them down. You know, studies show the science says that we're going to be more likely to comprehend what we've written down or remember what we've written down, retain that information. So nothing wrong with, with analog tools at all. You, you may not see yourself as the poster child for, for this, but nothing wrong with those methods because they're, they're methods that are going to stick, right? Yes. No, I, I, it worries me when my kids are so much on their iPads or computers. Devices. Yeah. I'm like you, though. I have my phone here during this conversation, just so I could read my mom's texts to you. Just so you know, I normally don't have the phone in the room. (laughs) Well, her name is Zainab Tone. And the book again is called The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work. Zainab, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I enjoyed our conversation. I want to say a special thanks to Zainab, who upon learning that this might be one of the few episodes my mother actually listens to, decided to send her some gifts, including some Turkish delight, which my mother absolutely loved. Thank you, Zainab. If you'd like to dig more deeply into this episode, maybe connect with Zainab online, check out any of the resources that we share, just go to the show notes page for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 480 for episode 480. For more on Note Making Mastery Cohort number five, which kicks off tonight, June 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern time, there's still time to get in on this and currently three bonuses available to you when you do. Just visit jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me. I've got at least the next nine or 10 interviews scheduled for Read to Lead. Next week, we'll be talking with Constance Derricks, making her second visit to the show. She's written a book called Meta Leadership. And then on the way, it's Stephen Van Cohen and his book, Connectable, Richard Schotten and the Illusion of Choice, David Burkus and Best Team Ever, Brian Orr has written Unconformed, Paulina Popliano has written Hidden Genius, Winner Sells All is from Jason Del Rey, Matt Abrams has written Think Faster, Talk Smarter, Your Future Self is from Hal Hirschfeld, and On Brand by Eliza Licht. Those are the next 10 authors and books we'll be featuring here on the show. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.